For almost a year and a half now, we have been walking through the public ministry of Jesus, as recorded by the Apostle John. And that is a big section of John's Gospel. It's the narrative that runs basically from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 12. That's why it's taken us so long. And I promised a year and a half ago that uh, as we went through it, we would come to seven miracles, seven what John calls signs, seven signs that certify the identity of Jesus as both Israel's Messiah and the Son of God. And today, praise the Lord, after a year and a half, we can say our list is complete, all seven signs. So let's take a look. There they are. Let's go through them real quick. Going all the way back to chapter 2, we had the changing of water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Then we had the healing of a royal official's son who was sick to the point of death in Capernaum. We had the healing of a lame man on the Sabbath at the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. That was chapter 5. The feeding of the 5,000 on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, chapter 6. Then Jesus walking back to Capernaum on the surface of the water, also in chapter 6. The healing of the, the man who was born blind in Jerusalem. He washed his eyes at the Pool of Siloam. And finally, today, we can arrive at number 7, raising Lazarus from the dead. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 11. This is exciting, right? We're, we're making it through. So one more chapter in the public ministry, and then we'll see the scene shift to Jesus' private ministry with his disciples before the cross. Okay, Lazarus. Most of us are, are familiar with this story, and most of us would look at it and say, this has got to be the most powerful of all of Jesus' miracles. This is the big one in the New Testament. But Honestly, this week I took a step back and I thought to myself, does that make sense? They're all miracles. I mean, they're all miraculous by definition. Is this one bigger or more difficult? They're all miracles. But anyway, I get it. This one feels really big because we understand the seriousness of death, right? We understand the finality of death. There's an old expression that comes out of the world, where there is life, there is hope. That's what the world believes. But also the opposite, once death sets in, all hope is lost. That is the perspective of the world that we live in. Now, healing somebody who is sick is a big deal, or lame, or blind, and we shouldn't discount how big that is, but raising somebody from the dead is a whole nother level. So let me set the context. We're going to be in chapter 11 for a number of weeks here, leading up to Easter. Let me set the context for this passage. Go back in your mind to the end of chapter 10, which is where we were last Sunday. Remember, Jesus had been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication, and he had this very sharp verbal exchange with a number of Jewish leaders who had confronted him and surrounded him in that area of the temple we call Solomon's portico. And in that exchange, Jesus had made some audacious claims about who he is in relation to the Father. And it was, it was so audacious that the Jews picked up stones ready to uh, put him to death right then and there. And as we talked about last week, and we've seen so many times, Jesus slipped away, right? Miraculously slips out of that really, really difficult situation and escapes not just the temple courts, but escapes out of the city of Jerusalem as well. And we know that he retreated eastward towards the Dead Sea, beyond the Jordan River, out to this remote location where John the Baptist had ministered for so long. And we're told at the end of chapter 10 that out there, beyond the Jordan, out in what we would call today the sticks, right? Out in the sticks, Jesus carried out this faithful ministry where many were following him and many were believing in him. So the events of chapter 10 take place at the Feast of Dedication. We know that takes place in December. And in chapter 12, when that comes, we'll be getting back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And we know that takes place in April. So the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead happens between those two important things, Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah and Passover. And so sometime between December and April of the year 33. Now, if you do a chronological study of the gospel accounts, and by the way, I'm going to do a quick commercial. I know I've done this before. Every serious Bible student should have this in his or her library. This is a classic I know so many of you already do, but if you want to know, they, they take all four of the Gospels and they lay them side by side in chronological order so you can tell where something like the raising of Lazarus fits into the, to the Gospel narrative. Very, very important book. 
But if you look at it now, what you'll find is that Luke, in particular, lets us know some of the amazing things that happened between John 10 and John 11, between this gap from December to April. In fact, some of the most, some of the most beloved teachings of Jesus happened during this particular time frame. Very important parables about the kingdom of God. The parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. The story of the prodigal son takes place during this period. And other teachings about things like discipleship and stewardship. And of course, this very ominous note that, that Luke gives us from chapter 13, it reads like this. It says, Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another. And at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, go away, leave here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and catch this now. And the third day I reach my goal. The third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And then he goes on to, to say this very famous thing. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. You were not willing. How many times has Jesus gone to Jerusalem and been rejected? You would not let me. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this happens between John 10 and John 11. And Luke confirms for us that during this period, large crowds are following Jesus. His popularity is growing as he is now looking forward to this time where he has to go back to Jerusalem for the final time, that final entry into the city, because that's where he must go to die. All right, let's read our text. In the midst, remember, in the midst of this fruitful ministry out in what we call Perea, a messenger arrives with a very personal plea from some of Jesus' closest friends. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment or perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Mar Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going to go there again? We'll stop there for this morning. Okay, so what we see happening in this story is something that is quite familiar to anybody who has lived on this earth for any significant amount of time. Just when you begin to think, I am figuring out life, it throws a curveball at you. Can I get an amen? amen? Something like an illness like this, a serious illness. And suddenly you feel like, what is going on? You feel like you're lost in a fog. You're, you're in a maze and you just can't find the doorway to get out. But what this story in John 11 is going to show us is this, that in the midst of that fog, when we can't see everything clearly, and we can't understand the why of it all, we can be sure that God is always at work. And this is so important for us to understand, that He is always orchestrating things for our ultimate good, our ultimate good, and for His glory. Now, I know that when you're in the midst of the storm and it's raging all around you, it's really hard to think like that. But the whole point of studying passages like this is so that we get better at this. So that when the next trial comes, we recognize it, we remember, and we grow. That's the whole point. So in these eight verses, there are two groups of believers who are caught up in a, a tough set of circumstances and they don't understand what's going on. It's beyond their control. First of all, you have two sisters who love their brother deeply and they're watching his life slip away. They're naturally distraught, so they call out to the one person they know can help them. But that help isn't going to come in time. And there's going to be confusion on their part and doubt. And yeah, disappointment. 
that Jesus didn't make it in time. The other group, Jesus' disciples, are, are sort of in the opposite situation. They're experiencing this wonderful time of amazing ministry. There is peace and there is safety and there is security. And now what happens? Jesus says it's time to go back to Judea. But why? We're doing so well right now. This, to them, this looked like a suicide mission. We're going back to the very place where everybody wants you dead, and things are going so well right here. Confusion. Can't see what's going on. Both, both of these groups, right? Now, in hindsight, we know the end of the story. Everything is going to turn out just fine. In fact, every character in this story is going to be happier and more blessed at the end of it. <laughs> right? Mary and Martha are actually going to be glad that their brother died, even more glad than if Jesus had come in time and healed him from his sickness. And the disciples are going to see a miracle that will change their lives forever, and they will realize, oh, this is why we had to go back to Judea. Both groups are just days away from seeing God work in ways that they couldn't even imagine at the time because they're in the middle of this fog, in the middle of this trial, and they can't see what God sees. Okay, let's look at this family in Bethany. Look at verse 1 again. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, I saw the social media post that went up this week that said, how many of you want to see more pictures and archaeological stuff from Pastor Jeff? And was so funny, Stacy posted it for us, and then she sent me a note. She said, oops, I may have set you up. Uh, she was worried that maybe there weren't going to be maps and pictures, but there are. So I said, nice job. Somehow you knew that. The Lord is good. So yeah, we have some pictures today. So this village of Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem. If you've been to the land, uh, you know that. Just over the Mount of Olives, uh, heading east, I'll give you a picture. There's a, a beautiful little map. So you see a couple dots there that are important. Jerusalem is always the, the blue dot. Always. Bethany's that red dot. Again, just about two miles to the east. Uh, and the yellow dot is Bethlehem, just so that you can sort of see uh, uh, some distance here. This is all part of Judea, right? So this is a very tight, very tight little space. Now, what did Bethany look like back in the day? Really nice artist rendering of what a small village in the hills of Judea might have looked like back then. Very charming, right? Like I, I saw that and I said, I want to move there. <laughs> that looks really, really nice. But it would have been of just a small village set, probably set on one of the rolling hills of, of Judea. Um, and, and so that's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Now, a cemetery dating back to the first century was discovered in Bethany, around the, somewhere in the 4th century, and there is, if you go there, and I generally, when I take groups to Israel, we don't go to Bethany. It's not worth the hassle of the security of it all. <laughs> Jeff's shaking his head. Yeah, it's not worth it. Uh, but there is a traditional site of Lazarus' tombs, but there's no real hard evidence that Lazarus was actually laid there. But it is a 1st century cemetery filled with first century tombs. I'll show you a picture in just a second. And of course, naturally, the several churches have been put on that site. The first one was built in the fourth century. It was destroyed about 200 years later in an earthquake. And the rubble was cleared away. They built a, a larger church, and that church actually survived all the way through the period of the uh, Crusades. And then the Ottoman Turks rolled into town, and they conquered Jerusalem, and the Turks did what they usually do. They built a mosque right over the church because <laughs> that's what conquering people do. And so they built a mosque over it, and they blocked the entrance to Lazarus's tomb, this traditional site. And then hundreds of years later, the Franciscans showed up, and they were able to negotiate a way to reopen the tomb. And so here's a picture of uh, 1906. This is one of the oldest pictures we have, the street-level view of what is known as the tomb of Lazarus, just outside the city of Bethany. And if you're willing to travel to Bethany today and willing to squeeze through that tight... When you go to Israel, there's a lot of holes you've got to squeeze through. It's just, if you're claustrophobic, Israel's not always easy. If you're willing to squeeze through there and then navigate 24 really gnarly, slippery steps that are built into the rock, you will get down into, uh, again, probably not where Lazarus was actually laid, but that's a really good example of what a first century tomb looked like. Those openings, bodies would be put there, and then later on, after the body decomposed, they would be put into an ossuary, bone boxes, right? And continue to be stored in, in, in tombs like that. So Israel's filled with sites like this. They're traditional sites. They, they may be close to the actual, but there's no hard evidence that that's the real thing. But in this case, there is some really interesting historical science involved. 
In the year 1873, a French archaeologist was led to a cave near Bethany that had a bunch of bone boxes or ossuaries in it. And one of these boxes that was discovered, 1873, had Christian symbols on it, including a cross and four names on the box. The first name was Simon. That didn't mean much because Simon's a very common name. But then came Mary, then came Martha, then came Eleazar, which is the Hebrew name for Lazarus. So we found, now again, that doesn't prove that those are the actual bones of this family, but because they're common names. All, th- all three of these names are, were quite common during this period. But it is entirely possible that we have the ossuary of this family. By the way, Bethany today is called El Azariah, which is Arabic for the place of Lazarus. It is centered in the West Bank, located in the West Bank. You can see how it's been built up today. So it's under Palestinian control. That's one of the reasons why it's sort of a hassle to get there. You've got to go through the big, see the security wall in the foreground? That's the giant security wall built by Israel about 20, 22 years ago that was designed to prevent suicide bombers from getting into the city of Jerusalem. So that's what uh, Bethany looks like today. Okay, Is that, was that enough archaeology and pictures and maps? Okay. I wasn't super enthusiastic, but okay. All right, back to the text. Okay. It is obvious from the text that Jesus had a close relationship with this family, with all three siblings. And being so close to Jerusalem, it's reasonable to believe that Jesus often stayed in their home whenever he came to Jerusalem. You can imagine having been in the temple and in the city all day, what a great way to get away, right? From all the threats he was receiving to go to a nearby village, a place to, uh, to rest his head in safety. And, and you can, can you imagine this for a second? I mean, I, I always think these weird thoughts when I read these stories. Imagine being a part of this family. The Son of God is your house guest. What a privilege they had that Jesus saw your home as a place of refuge from a hard day in the city, uh, that he would come and stay with you. I just, I can't even imagine. And by the way, I, I always think that, okay, well, did these three, were they with Jesus a number of times in Jerusalem, part of the crowd? Did they see some of the miracles that Jesus had done? Probably. Um, and the fact that Jesus has these close relationships like this, it, it's a reminder that we don't know everything about the three-year three ministry of Jesus, that he had deep relationships, many conversations not recorded, right? Many relationships not highlighted in the text. What we have, of course, is inspired by God. It's sufficient for our needs. But think about all the things we don't know about these, these three years. And I, I'm one of those guys, I always have questions. So I know I'm not going to get them this side of heaven, but when I get into the next age, I have questions. And I have a lot of questions about these three years because I want to know everybody Jesus knew and I want to hear about every convert, right? Are you guys not curious? Okay, it's just me. Okay. Now, we do get a brief window into the lives of the two sisters from a well-known story in Luke 10. John doesn't give us this story, but we've all heard this story chronologically. This story of Mary and Martha and busybody and all that stuff fits in right before Jesus heals the blind man. Okay, chronologically. But we all know the story. It says, Jesus, this is Luke 10, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. Martha was distracted with all of her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. Right? Every, every woman goes, ah, right? Just like, how, why would you do this? But again, she felt comfortable enough with the Lord to be able to speak this way, to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm breaking my tail over here doing all this stuff, and what's Mary doing? Why don't you tell her to help me? <laughs> the Lord says, Martha, Martha. When he repeats your name twice, you're in trouble, right? <laughs> Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. So we get a little glimpse into the personalities of these two. By the way, we shouldn't be too hard on Martha. That's probably all of us. We probably all would whine a little bit about that. Um, but we get a little bit about their personalities. And then look at verse 2 in our text. John gives us another little nugget here. He makes sure that his readers understand which Mary were. How many, there's so many Marys, right? And it gets so confusing. Miriam in Hebrew was a very common name in the first century. So he's going to tell us which Mary we're talking about. Verse 2. 
It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment or perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, there's another story in Luke 7 about a woman doing this. It's a different story, just to confuse you, (laughs) right? It's a different story. This one, by the way, this one, what's remarkable about this, this anointing that John's referring to here hasn't happened yet. It's coming up in the next chapter, in chapter 12. So he's sort of foreshadowing this. What that tells us is that this story, the story of Mary's anointing, was well known by the earliest Christians. He assumes the reader knows this story, even though we're going to get to it in chapter 12. But here's the larger point in this. Why does John include verse 2? It shows the tender love that Jesus has for this Mary and the tender love that she has for him in anointing his feet, in wiping his feet with her hair. There's a tenderness here, right? All three of these siblings are worshipers of Jesus. It's obvious that they've, they've put their trust in him and they, they follow him as both rabbi and master. Okay, what illness does Lazarus have? We have no idea. But it's serious, right? He's on, he's on, on death's doorstep. And if you look at the history of the ancient Near East during this time, there's a number of deadly diseases floating around. Yes, there were forms of cancer. There were parasitic infections. There was pneumonia and tuberculosis and smallpox and malaria, just to name a few. Whatever it was, it was serious enough that the sisters send this message to to find Jesus. Remember, Jesus is out there in the stick somewhere. They get a messenger. Go tell Jesus this. He's got to find him. This was not ring him up on the cell phone, right? This is not, you know, my Maps app. I got to go out to this place and find this guy. This is not an easy thing to do. Now, let's remind ourselves, where was Jesus at this time? Go back to our map. Jerusalem and Bethany, that green dot was traditionally the place we believe John the Baptist was baptizing out beyond the Jordan, this area that we know as Perea back then, just so that you know. Now, that's a, that's a full day's travel from Bethany out to that spot or more. And again, you've got to locate the guy, which not, might not have been an easy thing to do. So verse 3 says, The sister sent word to him, saying just simply, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, notice the sisters don't demand anything of Jesus here. The simplicity of it is important to take note of. They simply let him know what's going on. They don't even suggest a solution. They just say, look, he's sick. They don't do anything crazy or silly like, you know, the word of faith folks where they claim, I claim Lazarus' healing in your name, right? They don't do that. They don't feel the need to beg or plead Jesus to grab his attention. They just humbly present the need. And this is important. They rest in Jesus' love for their brother. They rest in that. And it's a great example for us. You know in Ecclesiastes 5, 2, where we had this great instruction where the teacher says, he says, God's in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. (laughs) Right? In other words, know your place. God knows everything. He knows your need. He knows your circumstances. So we don't have to use a lot of words. We don't have to use particular Christian-y language when we pray to God, right? Because it's not going to produce a better result because God's sovereign and He knows everything. We simply, as Mary and Martha do here, we let Him know what's going on. And most importantly, because this is really what He wants, we let Him know what's going on in our heart, right? Whatever that is, whatever's truthful and authentic about your heart, God wants to know what that is. By the way, he knows your heart, but he wants, he wants you as a child to come and say, this is, Lord, this is what I'm going through. Here's the need. This is how, I, how I'm processing through it, how I'm feeling about it. Notice also the sisters call him Lord, which is a really good place to start when you bring a request before the king with submission and with reverence and in faith, right? Knowing, and this is essential for prayer, in faith, knowing that he is both good and able to respond to your request because of his sovereign power and will. All those things are important, and we see it in this very simple request from these sisters. Now, before we get to Jesus' response, let's look at the other group of people involved. Drop down to verse 7. Let's figure out where the hearts of the disciples are at. Verse 7, After this, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. I I picture that everybody just says, What? Excuse me? Go where? Right? The disciples say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you're going to go there again? They are baffled by God's plan. How many of you guys have been baffled by God's plan? Okay, you're in good company. These poor guys, right? They must have been so relieved to get out of Jerusalem. You have to remember, 
Every time somebody picked up stones to get to Jesus, they were in the crosshairs too, right? So they're relieved to get out of Jerusalem. They've got safety and peace out there in the sticks and, and there's fruitful ministry happening. And now Jesus says, let's go back. And they're like, come on now. We were just getting comfortable here. Never get comfortable, right? But Jesus does this all the time to his disciples. He confounds their human reasoning because like us, they don't have eyes to see what Jesus sees. They just don't see it. All they see is danger. Not just for Jesus, but for themselves. Look, they're, they're, they're men just like us, right? They don't want to get arrested. They don't want to be executed in some painful way. Sometimes we, we forget that these are real human beings with real fears. I don't want to go back there and get grabbed by these guys. I don't want to end up on a cross. Can you imagine the fear? So they don't want to do it. They can't see the need to go back to Judea or the value of going back there. But Jesus is going to be obedient to the will of the Father. And God the Father is orchestrating all of the events leading up to Passover, to the cross. That's where it has to end. So Jesus gets the request, knows the will of the Father, says it's time for us to leave. We all would have said, nope, let's stay. This is where the ministry is good. <laughs> Jesus says, no, it's time. We've got to go back to Judea. Okay, how's he going to respond to the message from Mary and Martha? Verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So our best understanding of the timing here, this messenger travels from Bethany to Perea, locates Jesus. That's going to take at least a day, maybe more. We don't know for sure. At the time Jesus gets the message, Lazarus is likely still alive, but we know by the time he leaves, Lazarus is certainly dead. We know that. In fact, verse 14, Jesus knows supernaturally that Lazarus is dead when he leaves. So he declares this sickness is not to end in death. Now, does he mean by that that Lazarus won't physically die? Obviously not, right? He is going to physically die. What Jesus means is that his physical death is not going to be the end of the story. It's not going to end there. In fact, there's something much bigger at play. That's the whole point of this statement in verse 4. Two things, the glory of God and that's speaking in a general sense, in a Trinitarian way, the Godhead, and in particular, the glory of God the Son is about to be put on display. And this brings us back to what we saw in chapter 9 at the last sign, the story of the, the man who was born blind, who was healed, remember? Remember how the disciples asked Jesus about this blind man? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? What did Jesus say? Neither. Neither. Your premise is wrong. Neither one. He says this, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Same thing is going to happen with Lazarus. He is going to die so that the glory of God might be displayed. Both stories involve this really important, this sign, as John calls it, of the witness to God's glory. But the stakes here in chapter 11 are a wee bit higher, right? In chapter 9, it was overcoming blindness. Now it's reversing death. That's a pretty big deal. Now, Deep breath. Let me ask you a question. What is the hardest thing to deal with in the Christian life? That's, I know it's a really big question. It'd be really fun for you to take a day and, and ponder that, and then we do a poll of our congregation. How would we answer that question? What would be the majority answer for that question? As I was reading through this text this week, I answered the question by looking at the circumstances that Mary and Martha are dealing with here. Here, here's what I would say. The hardest thing to deal with in the Christian life is how to feel when God doesn't respond to me in the way that I've been taught that he should respond or expect that he should respond. Let me say that again. Hardest thing in the Christian life is how to feel, how to process, how to respond when God doesn't respond to me in the way I've been taught he responds or in the way that I expect that he will respond. When that happens it tends to create questions in our heart, right? It opens the door to doubting. It opens the door to disillusionment. And it's exactly what Mary and Martha were faced with. They expected that Jesus would respond immediately. Either one of two ways, either show up as fast as he possibly could, or at least to send the messenger back and say, hey, I'm packing up and I'm on my way and I'll be there soon. Either way, Either way, they would hear something from Jesus. And I think that's reasonable, right? But look at verse 5. Look what unfolds next. 
John starts by reminding us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Do not miss this because, look, John gives this. He repeats this truth for emphasis. John wants us to see and feel the depth of the love that Jesus has for these three. But then comes one of the most shocking statements in all of Scripture, verse 6. Okay, did you see and feel the love? Don't, don't miss that. He really, really loves these three. He loves them individually, by the way, verse 5, right? It, I love how John, there's little keys in the text. Jesus loves Martha, Jesus loves Mary, Jesus loves Lazarus. Everybody got that? But verse 6 says, So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. John inserts this little word so at the beginning of the sentence. It's a Greek particle, un. And it basically means, therefore. Okay, so catch what he's saying. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Therefore, he stayed in Perea for two extra days. Huh? That makes no sense to us, does it? How in earth, how on earth is that love in the way we view love? Jesus knew that delaying two days would mean the certainty of Lazarus' death. He's not only choosing to let Lazarus die, he's making sure that by the time he gets to Bethany, he is completely dead. Now, out there in first century Bethany, there were no official medical practitioners going around certifying when people were truly dead. I know there's a Princess Bride reference in there, but I'm going to let, let I saw it on your faces. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> Mostly dead. But there were reports, and, and you see this in the, in the historical record, reports from ancient people of real stories where somebody, everybody thought a person was dead and they're literally being carried that day to the grave and suddenly they, their heart starts going again. They're, they're, they're breath, they were still alive. Their breathing had become so shallow that nobody really detected it and suddenly they sit up and they're alive. I mean, talk about shocking, right? There, there's evidence that that has happened and, and still happens even today, by the way. But there was a sort of an urban legend and is actually documented in the first century that that. Jews began to look at this situation and process it like this. They said, well, when the, when the soul leaves the body, it hovers over the body for three days. And it stays there until the body begins to change, decompose. And then it, it takes off because it's waiting to see if it can re-enter the body. Now, again, that's an urban legend. You know, like, like conspiracy theories today, that spreads through a community and people begin to believe it. Jesus obviously doesn't believe that, but he is not going to give anybody in Bethany that day an excuse to say, well, maybe he wasn't completely dead. So he's going to wait how many days? Four days. Four days, Lazarus will be dead by the time Jesus gets to Bethany. There's be no question. In fact, there's a smell coming from the tomb, right? He is decomposing. Jesus is going to make sure. And he does it, why? Because he loves Lazarus. Okay. By the way, just a quick reminder, this is often forgotten. Jesus didn't have to be physically present in Bethany to heal Lazarus. Could have healed from a distance. He did that with the royal official's son, remember? So he didn't have to be there to do it, but he doesn't heal him. Why? Because there's a plan in place, right? There's a plan in place, sovereign plan, for Jesus to be physically present. Why? So people will witness this miracle with their own eyes. And then that testimony will go out like ripples across the lake. Amen? Now, here's the thing. We can sit here 2,000 years later, and we can talk about this story as if it were an academic exercise. That's easy to do. But it's important, again, to dive into the text, to put on the sandals of these real people and realize that for Jesus' friends, this was far more than an academic exercise. This was real life. This was a personal and devastating tragedy that they were going through. Yes, John tells us that Jesus' delay was motivated by love, but how many of you think it was received that way? Does anybody really believe that the sisters thought, oh, this is Jesus' way of loving us? Not a chance. None of us would, because we don't have those eyes, right? Perhaps the hardest thing to deal with in the Christian life is how you feel when God doesn't respond as you expect that He should. We can learn something from this. You can almost picture Mary and Martha going through the grieving process and in 
quiet conversations, private conversations, whispering to each other, why isn't he here? Why didn't he come? Do you understand this? Does he not really love us? I mean, right? Can you imagine all the conversations? Now, somebody might object, well, if, if, if he knew Lazarus was going to be dead by the time he arrived in Bethany, what's the hurry? Four days, five days, ten days, whatever, right? It's not going to make a difference. But the other thing to see in this story is that it's not just his death that matters. Mary and Martha's hearts were in agony over their brother. Having Jesus present as a means of comfort would have meant the world to them. It's not just the fact that he died. It's the comfort in the process of his dying that would have mattered to these ladies. These, these sisters needed Jesus in this moment, but he didn't respond. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is a hard truth. Jesus intentionally prolonged the sorrow of Mary and Martha in this situation for his purposes. I hope as I say that, you, you, you're thinking about your own life and your own trials, your own situations, and how you process through things. Don't let this just sit on the page. Start thinking in terms of your own life. How have you handled these things? This is a hard truth. Here's a few more hard truths. Lazarus really did die. And as somebody who's seen several people die before my eyes, I can tell you, it's not easy. But he physically went through that. And in his final moments, Lazarus knew, Jesus isn't here to save me. Think about that. And his sisters went through all the pain of watching him die. I've watched people die. It's painful to watch. And then they had to go through the pain of the burial and all the grieving and the mourning that goes with it. So this wasn't just an academic study for this family. It was a real death with real pain and real loss. And all the while they're wondering, where is Jesus? Why didn't he come? I hope you can feel the weight of this because this is heavy. Have you ever experienced something like this? where you have a need in your life and you pray and you go to the Lord and you're like, Lord, I need you to intervene here. I'm in a fog. I'm in a maze. I can't find my way out of this. I need you. And it feels, I'm going to emphasize that word feels, feels like silence from heaven. Because you've been taught that God should do this or that, or you expect that he will respond in this way, but then it doesn't happen. It doesn't come that way. And so we start asking questions. Is he really listening? Is he still in control? Is he mad at me? That's one of our favorite questions. Is he mad at me? Have I let him down and therefore he's not listening anymore? He doesn't care. We go through, right? We're swimming in this thing because we expected him to respond in a certain way, just like Mary and Martha. Here's something to consider. Three times in John's gospel, we see people close to Jesus ask something of him. Three times. Here, we have Mary and Martha. Remember back to the wedding feast in Cana, where mom came to him and said, hey, can you fix the wine problem? Can you do that now, son? <laughs> back in chapter 7, Jesus' brothers come to him and say, hey, you know, dude, if you really want to show people what you can do, you should go up to the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Three times. Jesus, we think you should do it this way. You should produce wine for the party. You should go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. You should come to Bethany and heal Lazarus. Three times. Pressure from mom, pressure from brothers, pressure from close friends. In all three cases, how did Jesus respond? First of all, he refused to grant their request in that moment. In all three cases. He said no. Now, later on, he actually does respond. And he does what they ask. And what we see in that is he does, he does respond, but he does it in the perfect timing that the Father has for him. Not in the timing of human beings. It's a very important thing to see. He does do it. He demonstrates that his delays are not denials. I hope you'll hear that loudly. His delays are not denials. There was a greater purpose in play in each one of those situations. A greater purpose. A greater purpose that would eventually lead to the glory of God being displayed. We need to learn this in our lives. When we feel like there's silence from heaven, or God's not working the way we think he should, or he's not responding how I expect him to, or the way Pastor Jeff told me he would. It's not happening right now on my timetable. This is why we have stories like this. 
to fall back on and say, oh, I see. God acts according to his perfect decree, according to his sovereign purposes. And that includes the timing, the means, and the result. And he doesn't bow the knee to our desires and our timing and what we want out of it. And we got to remember this, guys. And so now we can see the truth here that this delay was motivated by love. It's hard, it's hard to acknowledge, but love motivated Jesus to let Lazarus die. And yes, it was also love that brought about for a time this sorrow in the life of Mary and Martha. It was love. John goes out of his way to highlight this lesson for us. Jesus loves each member of this family and therefore he delays in coming to them. That is a hard thing to understand, isn't it? But he does, he loves them. See, when it's all said and done, the highest form of love that God can show us is doing whatever is necessary for us to see more of his glory. Not always to meet the immediate need that we think needs to be met, but to show us the greater picture, which is his glory and his power. Ultimately, that is what is going to give you and I the the highest joy possible. Not to see that immediate thing done necessarily, but to see his glory in some greater way. And this death and resurrection will put the glory of God on display for many to see, some with their own eyes, but as I said, the testimony of what happens here will go out. So much so that eventually the Jews want to put him to death because of this. That's how far it will get. So love means giving us what will bring us the fullest sense of joy, even if for a time we have to experience a measure of suffering. Can we remember this in our lives? Man, so good this week as I was studying this, because moment of transparency, I struggle with this too. I've got goals. (laughs) I've got struggles, and I want them fixed when? Right now. Darn it. I mean, we're all in this boat together, right? Like, and and I, I find myself telling the Lord, you know, Lord, you'd be glorified more if you helped me fix this problem. We all do it. Can we trust the Lord in this? So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking a lot about what it means to wait upon God. But let me wrap up today by talking just a few more things about suffering and trials. Again, Mary and Martha were in the grip of a great temptation in this moment. A temptation to doubt, a temptation to, to feel like the Lord had abandoned them, the temptation to think that God no longer cared about them, that God didn't care about their suffering. And each one of us in this room this morning will face some sort of similar trial. And if you haven't yet faced that, that's awesome, but it's coming. For every one of us in this room, that moment is coming, and we've got to prepare for it. You will face a severe test of your faith. And you will be tempted in that fog, in that maze, to question God's goodness. You heard it here first. You will face that test. Remember, between the day that Lazarus died and the resurrection four days later, nobody in that family could see how God was moving. They couldn't see it. Nobody could understand how he would be glorified through this death. Never forget that. But God is always at work. God doesn't take days off. doesn't take moments off. He's always at work. Seal this into your heart and mind. That during that fog and that maze and you can't find the door, God is at work. He's doing more than you can even know. Here's some good advice that was given to me years ago. Uh, I've never forgotten it. When you're tempted to ask the why question, why is this happening to me? Two better questions. First of all, what? What can I learn from this trial? Not why is it happening, what can I learn? And secondly, how? How might God be using this in my life for His glory? Those are way better questions because you know where the why question leads you to? Self-pity and despair. But the other questions, the what and the how, will lead you back to the Lord. Lord, show me. What do I need to learn from this? Lord, how are you going to show your glory through this? So three things. First of all, ask this question. Is this situation going to display God's glory in a way that I can't see right now? And we can't, right? Our vision is limited. We are human beings with limitations. How might you do this? Consider again the man born blind whom Jesus healed at the pool of Siloam. 
Does it shock you that God would allow a man to be born blind and live for decades in that condition just so that God's glory would one day be displayed in his healing? Does that shock you? That this man would go through, I mean, there's suffering in that, being born blind, right? And, and spending years and years, decades, living in that, begging in the city of Jerusalem so that people like us 2,000 years later can learn from his example. Is that shocking? What about Job? Does it shock you that God would take away all of his possessions, all of his children, then his health, so that God's glory might be shown before the angels and the, and the angels in the heavenly realms? And so that people 4,000 years later like us could learn from his example. Does that shock you? If those examples shock you or bother you, then your view of God and your view of yourself and your view of eternity needs to be shored up and strengthened and straightened out. Our lives are but a mist that comes and goes. I know it doesn't always feel like that. We're a mist. It comes and goes. But God's glory is forever. Forever. His glory and His purposes will far outlast any feelings that we have, any suffering that we go through, any loss that we experience. This is what Peter was getting to. When he wrote 1 Peter, the very opening chapter, he said this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Are you getting the eternal sense here? Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter paints this beautiful picture. Guys, look at all that God has done for you. But, keep going, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, for a little while, during that mist of your life, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're found in Christ, you've been blessed beyond what you can even fathom right now. So blessed. You've received great mercy from the hand of God. He has brought you to life. And look at the promises that we saw in that passage about what awaits you in the life to come. But now, while you're living in this earthly tent here on earth, you're going to be distressed by some hard things. It's going to be hard. You're going to, you're going to be in that fog someday. You're going to be in a maze and you can't find the door. And you're going to cry out and you're going to feel like, is, is God abandoned me? Just like Mary and Martha. But if you trust in the goodness and sovereignty of God, then your faith will be strengthened through that fire. Strengthened. And at the end of the process, your life and your testimony is going to bring great honor and glory to Jesus. So that's the first question to ask. Is this situation somehow going to display God's glory more obviously? Here's the second question to ask. Is this trial designed to build me up in a way that I can't see yet? Is this trial going to build me up and strengthen me in a way that in the midst of it, I can't see. Think about this. How old was John when this was all going on? He's a young man, right? Probably 30. You know, younger than Jesus, early 30s, young guy. How many times over the next 50 years of his ministry do you think he remembered Lazarus being raised from the dead? Do you think, that, do you think this miracle strengthened him a wee bit? How many times did Jesus or did John think about Jesus getting that message from Mary and Martha and then say, I'm staying two more days? John's like, what? You're doing what? We're going where? How many times did he, he remember back to when Jesus said, we're going to Judea and everybody said, no, no, we can't do that. That's a suicide. But then it wasn't. How many times did he think back to the sound of the weeping and wailing in Bethany when they arrived and Lazarus was dead? But then how many times did he picture in his mind the sight of a man four days dead walking out of a tomb in his own power? Would that not change your life? He didn't realize it in the moment, but this trial was going to build his faith and impact him for the rest of his life. 
It built him up. And my guess is, every time he got discouraged in ministry, he thought about this. Every time his, he was persecuted or his, his life was being threatened, he thought about this. Every time ministry wasn't going the way it should have, he thought it should be going, he thought back and said, you know what? I serve the Prince of Life, the King of Glory. What do I have to worry about? That's how trials can build us up. Friends, you and I, we learn from every situation we face. But the things we learn the most from are the hardships that we go through. They come from God's hand in love, don't they? For our good. This is one of the reasons that we embrace trials. The way that James says, consider it all joy when these things happen. Because it produces what in us? Stronger faith and perseverance. That's a hard truth. Last one, and then I'll wrap up. Is this suffering somehow for the good of others? In some way that I can't see right now. And this one's often left out of the discussion because when we go through a hard thing, we hyper-focus on ourselves, don't we? We get all inward and we're like, oh, I'm struggling. We think about how it affects me. But here's the thing. The people around you, some of which you know now, some of which you haven't even met yet, might be built up because of the trial you're going through. Even people you haven't met yet, God often has them in mind when he brings a trial or suffering into your life. I've always loved 2 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5 because it sort of pulls back the curtain on how God operates in our struggles. Let me, this is not a verse we often look at, but it's good. He says, He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. So listen, you've gone through something hard? Ah, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you learn something from God in the process of that? And what might you you pass on to others who are going to go through a similar trial? I I mean, I know some people have gone through incredibly difficult things. And then, and they can't, again, they're in that maze, like, Lord, why would you bring this into my life? And then a couple years later, they're like, Jeff, somebody just brought into our church a family who's going through the same thing. And we had a chance to minister to them. We had a chance to come alongside them and help carry them through that. God is so good. And they were actually able to say at the end of it, you know what? We're actually glad that we went through that. Because the joy of ministering to others and helping them walk through it made it all worthwhile. So sometimes your suffering is for others. Friends, no experience is wasted in the kingdom of God. Are you spiritually mature enough to recognize that the difficulties God God brings into your life might be for others? You just can't see it right now, but will you trust Him in that? Jesus loved Martha, Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. So, when he heard that they were sick, he stayed two days longer. Oh man, that's a hard truth. There's so much more to talk about in this story, so will you come back next Sunday? Let's bow our heads.